Welcome to Wild Quincy, a podcast that looks into the little-known and forgotten past of Quincy, Illinois. When you think of serial killers, most everyone thinks of a Gacy, a Dahmer, or a Bundy. But few know about Quincy's own serial killer. With his medical license, he gained the name Double O Swango. The history of Quincy's most notorious serial killer, Michael Swango, coming up next. Now, here's your host, Chris Ketters and Travis Hoffman. Welcome back to your favorite new podcast, Wild Quincy. Travis, we had some fun last week talking about the greatest radio station of all time. And, you know, I figured we would have some complaints or some arguments saying, no, 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 this is the greatest radio station of all time in Quincy. But you know what? We didn't get any. So we must have been right. We're always we're always right until other way we hear otherwise, Chris. So, <laughs> uh, if you haven't noticed, uh, Travis is not with us tonight. This is actually Barry White with my my sexy <laughs> sinus infection voice. Uh, apologies, I think we'll get through. I kind of like it though. I wish I could bottle this, Chris, and just uh, douse it whenever I want to. I'll add a little bass yeah. to your uh, to your audio when I do the editing and make you sound real deep and low, like a Barry Manilow kind but, of. No, sound. no, no, it's, no, uh, no Barry right. White. Barry Manilow is much different. That, that's different. He's a crooner. <laughs> yeah, don't make me sound like Barry Manilow, please. All right, Chris, what's going on, man? What's new? How are you? We got a lot to talk about. This is a big episode. You know, these episodes. It seems like there's uh, we're in season two. It seems like you get into about three or four episodes a season that are very, very deep. And this is one of those episodes that's going to be very deep. We're going to be talking about uh, coming up in here in a few minutes. So we don't want to spend a lot of time gabbing because there's a lot of information right. to get to. But Travis, there is a couple things we got to gab about. And first one being we got some new Patreon members. Absolutely. And, and let's let the quick gabbing begin here. We want to thank Waylon Jennings. That's right. I can't say for sure if that's a pseudonym or not. <laughs> but if it is or if it isn't, Waylon Jennings. You're just a good old boy, never mean to no harm. At the $5 Medium Jeff special, he joined us on the Patreon side. Trisha Bowden, thank you very much also for joining at the $5 Jeff, Medium Jeff specials uh, Patreon side. They have unlocked great bonus content and shown their support to Wild Quincy. We encourage you to do the same. I saw that come in that our new Patreon member was Waylon Jennings. I literally had to go on Google and search. I know who Waylon Jennings was. I was like, I think he passed away. Oh yeah, he, he's super dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he passed away a long time ago. So Wild Quincy, the the choice of dead country artists, number one podcast. <laughs> right. Yeah, we got Merle Haggard, we got Waylon Jennings, we got them all. So we thank you guys for joining us. You can do that as well. Uh, we'll have that little promo ad coming up your way in just a few minutes. But Travis, it's time to get to the question of the day. Are you ready for this one? Uh, if I say no, will you make me do it? No, yeah, just kidding. Bring it on, Chris. Bring it on, Chris. You are one for one this season uh, so let far. The, let so. the streak continue. Well, I think this one you might might be able to, to, to handle. This one's a, a pretty simple one. The question is this. Which TV station was the first to broadcast in Quincy. You have two, actually three choices. We're going to give you three choices. Okay. Your choices are KHQA, WGEM, or WTJR. So those are your possibilities. Again, the question is, which TV station was the first to broadcast in Quincy? Was it KHQA, WGEM, or WTJR? Are. Mm, that's that might be a tough one. We'll see. We'll see how the old uh -huh. uh, thinker does when we get back to the end of this episode. We'll have that answer for you coming up at the end of the episode, like Travis just mentioned. But right now, we're going to uh, really deep dive into a subject that is the uh, trueness of true crime, and we're going to talk about the notorious doctor, the doctor in Quincy, 
known as Michael Swango. That's coming up next here on Wild Quincy. Here's what you missed on the latest After Hours episode of Wild Quincy. Tom and Betty Forrest Sky Dancers, who have thrilled thousands of persons throughout the United States, are in Quincy preparing for their famous act, the 144-foot pole on which Tom and Betty will perform, will soon be erected atop the Montgomery Warden Company building at 517 Main Street. Its erection will be super... That's the 12-year-old boy. <laughs> its erection will be supervised by Tom, who has been aerialist for more than 25 very years. Pole. Oh, that's huge. Huge step forward. Our After Hours episodes are available exclusively for Patreon members by going to patreon.com slash wildquincy. For just a couple dollars a month, not only will you double the amount of Wild Quincy episodes at your fingertips, but you'll also be supporting our efforts as we continue to dive into the wild and crazy history of our favorite town. Also, as a Patreon member, you can take part in our live events and Patreon-only outings, as well as having access to our regular episodes two days before they are released to the public. It's easy. Just head to patreon.com slash wildquincy. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash wildquincy and become a wild thing today. Hey, there's Doc Holliday. Thrilled to be back on the radio here in Quincy and also thrilled to give you more wild Quincy with Travis and Chris now. Welcome back to Wild Quincy and Travis. Last week we were talking about legends of radio, and I think we just heard from one of the legends of Quincy Radio. Welcome back, Doc Holliday. What's up, Doc? That is so good to hear his voice. That's awesome, man. Appreciate him doing that return liner, and you can catch him on the uh, one uh, 100.9 The Eagle. Great radio station. Yeah. If you want. I, I think they're, they're, I've listened to it a lot, and some of the music they're playing there, I, I have to give them kudos. It, it brings kind of a throwback to to. 99 Q days and some of the music they're playing. So it's really good to hear. There's that. something to be said about whenever I actually hit on the radio. I'm not on the radio much, but I landed on it and it's, I, I was on there for a long time, Chris. It's one of those stations where I just kept it rolling because it was some good tunes. So check it out if you haven't yet. Yeah. Good stuff. And you can check doc out. He's, he's doing afternoons there now, so you can catch him on uh, the Eagle. But uh, we are going to dig into a subject today that is something that's pretty well known in the Quince, really well known in the Quincy area for that matter. But it's not something that you know a lot about. I mean, people hear this, heard the stories, but they only heard a portion of the story about what happened to this doctor in Quincy named Michael Swango. Before I start and go into my 10 pages of outline <laughs> that I did, uh, Travis, I want to kind of kind of get a preliminary from you. Yeah. How much do you know about, about Swango? You know, I think to your point, I think this is like an iceberg, Chris. I mean, I just know the headlines. Um, I only know the little tip that's above water, but there's so much more about this story that I haven't heard. I'm on the edge of my seat waiting to hear what you found during the deep dive. So I think there's a huge chunk that maybe Quincians know the very little high level story like me. But it sounds like there's a lot more to it. So I'm raring to hear what you got to say, man. My uh, wife looked at my outline because I was trying to edit it down a little bit before we started tonight. And she yeah. was actually pretty amazed. She didn't realize all the stuff that actually happened with him in his history. So it was a shock to her. And hopefully some of you guys will find out some information that you haven't known. So let's dive into this. And Travis, uh, we have so much that this outline, we're going to go ahead and I'm going to have you put this on our website because it's, a, it's like I said, a 10-page outline. It's going to give you all the details 
details. But we're going to jump through some of the areas, but I'll try filling in as much as possible. And then, of course, we'll have more on our Patreon episode as well. Most of this comes from a book that I found by Jack Smith called Dr. Death, The Life of Serial Killer Michael Swango. It's a very good book. We'll have the link for that book uh, at the bottom in our show notes uh, for you to check out. You can buy it on Kindle for a couple bucks. It's it's a it's a really quick read, uh, but a lot of valuable information on there. Other information I got was from the Harold Wig articles from back in the day. That had more to do with the history of the family because there's a lot of neat stuff with the family that you know not a lot of the newspapers a lot a lot of the uh the books get into but i kind of want to hit up since we have a little bit more of that local access with the herald wig so a couple things i want to throw out to you uh Michael's father was was actually a colonel, and his name was Virgil Swango. His mother was Muriel Swango, and he had two brothers, Robert and John. Now, interesting little tidbit here of background. In 1938, I came across this thing that Mary Jane Swango was granted a divorce from Virgil Swango on the grounds of desertion, and that was in 1938. Virgil then married in 1946, or excuse me, 1947, a Mabel May. Then they got a divorce that that's uh, around that same time. And then Muriel and Virgil, who is Michael's mother and father, got married in 1947. So Mr. Swango, Virgil Swango, was on his third marriage when that came about. I didn't, you know, didn't want to make much of that, but, you know, there is some newspaper articles and some 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 books that mentioned that maybe it had something to do with his childhood upbringing uh, because right. of this. And not only that, but also that his father ended up deserting the family later on. And so the mother was responsible for raising everybody. Uh, so, you know, we don't know in the mind of, of him why he did what he did, but um, who knows if some kind of seeds are planted in, you know, in yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? And, and I did take the time to, to go through a lot of the Whig articles just to see if there was any you know comparison between things that happened where he lived, like maybe like a fire or weird stuff happening, and I couldn't really find anything like that. And, and as you're going to find out, it really wouldn't make any sense because of who we're talking about. So, Travis, we're going to jump right in to 1972, and we're going to go to the Christian Brothers School because this was the year Michael graduated from Christian Brothers was in 1972. He was valedictorian of the class. He was also an accomplished musician. He played both a piano and clarinet. He also was so good, in fact, that he took part in a professional symphony that toured his senior year. And not only all that, he was also elected class president as well his senior year in high school. I do you want to mention that you go, I think it was a year difference that D.A. Wybring graduated from Christian Brothers. I think he was a year younger than Michael Swango was. I think he graduated in 73, so a little side note for you there. So There you go. But, uh, so Swango, he moved on to Millican University in Decatur. He had a 4.0 GPA. Had a serious breakup with his girlfriend uh, while he was at Millican, and friends say it had a lasting effect on him. He decided to go ahead and drop out of school his sophomore year and join the military, so he went into the Marines. He entered training at uh, a base in St. Louis. Then he transferred to, to Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. I hope I'm saying that right. Other researchers say that he also was in San Diego as well. He obtained the rank of sharpshooter. He also received a bunch of medals, like a materious uh, mast and defense civil service medal. And he was honorably discharged in 1976. So then he goes back to college, Travis, and he goes to Quincy University, comes back to Quincy and gets into QU. I had no idea that he was uh, so rooted in Quincy and his upbringing. That's interesting. Uh, I didn't mention this before. He was actually born in 1954. He wasn't born in Quincy, however, but they did end up moving to Quincy later on. And, and we'll have this all this 
information on our website, but we'll tell you exactly you know where he lived, where he went to school, and even talking about his father going to Vietnam. He was in Vietnam for multiple years as well. So we'll, that'll all be available on the website. But yeah, he goes to Quincy University. His only extracurricular activities was spending late nights, get this, in the science lab conducting chemistry and research experiments. Mm. Kind of odd. Mm, mm, mm. This one, some of you guys that uh, may know this person will know what I'm talking about. His senior thesis was on a guy by the name of George Markov. Ring any bells, Travis? Not for me. Okay, so George Markov was a journalist that was in Great Britain who was poisoned and killed. So he was very in-depth about going into the details of that guy. In fact, he was actually trying to create the formula in that chemistry class of the formula that killed this guy in... Wow in uh, Great Britain. so Quite a fixation on that topic, it seems like. Yeah, well, and so he graduated from QU in 1979. He had an actual an award from the American Chemical Society as well when he graduated. So then he moves on and he goes to the SIU School of Medicine in Springfield. He took an interest in courses like pharmacology, toxicology, and pathology. However, he was uh, not the ideal student because he started to cheat on tests. And Hmm. how he got caught for cheating on these tests was he would put notes in his zipper (laughs) and then pull them out uh, of his pants as he was was taking these tests. Interesting. Very shortly, a lot of other students started doing this. And so the teachers knew that Swango was the first person that did this. So they had a name for it, and it was called Swan Going. Swan Going. That was the name that the teachers gave was Swan Going when the students were cheating by putting these notes in their. Uh, in so their the whole class, the, all they heard was just, I mean, that lovely sound of of just <laughs> the whole time. The whole time. I mean, that's got to be suspicious. You heard like fifty. That's zi- got to be suspicious. You heard like fifty zippers opening. When was that the, when, when the the, uh, the button up jeans? You know, instead of the zipper, you had the f- like the button fly. Oh, the maybe? button I don't fly. Know. I don't know. Man, maybe it'd That'd be a awkward bit. too. I mean, you look pretty strange unbuttoning your fly. <laughs> Yeah. Sorry, let's get back to no, it. No, no, wait, no problem. Uh, so in his final year, they, you know, when you're in medical school, you have to choose a specialty. His specialty ended up being neurosurgery. Uh, instructors and fellow students noticed that the patients that were under his care expired more quickly than usual. So hmm. he quickly not only had this title of swan going, but his, his fellow students also began nicknaming him 00 Swango, like 007. Like okay, like license to kill kind James of thing. James Bond, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, so they end up calling him Double O Swango. In 1982, he was nearly kicked out of medical medical school for falsifying patient reports during an OBGYN mandatory observation course. It was determined uh, that if he should be removed or not, they had a hearing. A, a unanimous vote was reached with only one dissenting vote. So since he didn't have consistent, everybody voted in favor of removing him from school. He was able to stay. So he ended up finishing up at SIU School of Medicine. Then we go to the next part because, you know, there's a lot of school involved when you're going to medicine. So now he goes to Ohio State University Medical Center in 1983. This is July 1st of 1983. He beats out 60 other applicants and receives a 12-month internship in general surgery with an agreement for residency in neurosurgery following. However, Travis, patients start getting sick under... Michael Swango's care. The first one being a um, 
actually a nurse that noticed it by the name of Rodis Hall. Uh, she started noticing that there was an unusually high amount of cold blues, which cold blues mean that there's a patient that needs attention right. immediately. And uh, these cold blues were always patients that were assigned to Swango's care. The Ooh. first one being this case, which is kind of the first one that kicks off everything that's going to happen, which there's a lot of. It's a, by the name of a person of Ruth Barracks. Ruth was admitted for head trauma from a fall in January of 1984. She suffered a cerebral hematoma. However, she was able to get quickly stabilized. She stays in the hospital for a while. On January 31st, a nurse who was doing rounds saw that uh, Ruth's condition was in pretty good shape. She was talking. She was fine. Everything was going well. Well, uh, Dr. Swango at the time appeared in Ruth's room and told the nurse that he was checking in on the patient. The nurse left the room, came back about 20 minutes later, and found that Ruth was like unresponsive she was barely breathing she she was passed out and so a code blue was automatically issued and swango of course was the first one to respond they were able to revive her uh, they sent her to the icu and then a few weeks later on february 6th a nurse named annie Ritchie noticed that one of ruth's ivs was malfunctioning so she called for dr swango to come and assist the nurse left but kept checking in on swango as he was doing his work and then on one of the drops by she notices that swango put several unknown syringes into ruth's iv bag a few mm. minutes later, Swango left the room. Nurse Richie comes back in, and all of a sudden, Ruth goes into cardiac arrest. So they obviously issue another code blue, but this time they're unable. So this is to the second code blue for the same person. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it's they unfortunately they can't revive her. The cause of death is actually a cardiopulmonary arrest due to cerebrovascular accidents, which in other terms is a stroke. So her cause of death right. was determined to be a stroke. The incident. Gruesome suspicion. People started wondering what exactly was going on, and uh, that that suspicion increased when another nurse witnessed Swango refusing to administer a CPR to a patient with breathing difficulties. Uh, Swango believed that the patient actually needed a heart monitor instead of CPR. So that was weird. So the hospital says we better do an internal investigation of what's going on here because not only was those things going on, but there were some other instances. Uh, so they, they conducted this internal investigation. They couldn't find any wrongdoing. However, they decided to, since everything going on with Swango, they were going to move him to a different wing of the hospital and uh, kind of get him refreshed and with some new people. So there wasn't that thought that he is this you know doctor killer kind of person however guess what travis <laughs> follows him around huh? shortly after patients begin dying mysteriously in this new wing it just keeps going man this is just the start of it this is all still in ohio this correct? is just in ohio was during okay. his residency yeah okay so he goes in this next area um, talking, he goes from patients. Now he transitions to something a little bit different. So while he's still in Ohio, there's one instance where Swango says, Hey, I'm, you know, you guys are awesome. I'm going to buy you KFC. And he goes and buys everybody Kentucky fried chicken, all of his coworkers. Okay. Everybody gets sick all of a sudden that eats the mm. KFC. It, oh, sorry. Except for Swango who is eating his fried chicken with no problems. So that rings some bells. Yeah. Everybody thought it might be something he did, but nobody could ever prove it. So it kind of got thrown away. And so in 1984, he was ending his residency and the hospital decided not to invite Swango back. He's, they, you know, with everything going on, 
They're like, yeah, you know, we're not going to continue with our contract. We're going to go ahead and let you go. However, they did let him receive his medical license. Hmm. Okay. So Interesting. with that ending and him not having that position anymore, he decides to come back to Quincy. Boy, you gotta, you gotta wonder what a, what a turning point that would have been. That seems strange to me that they're like, well, you know, X amount of people died under weird instances here, but we're not going to renew you. But here's a license. Go, go do it somewhere else, and we'll just yeah. leave it under the rug. Has kind of a, a weird, weird tone to me. But, but then you kind of wonder how common that is. I mean, it could just be. A yeah, coincidence or accident that somebody's just unlucky. Well, they probably didn't want to deal with a lawsuit if he got lawyered up and, and why he didn't couldn't get his medical degree. So we moved to him going back to Quincy. So he moves back to Quincy, and of course, uh, his family thinks that he has this great position in Ohio, and so he has to lie to his family about why he left, and he decided he wanted to change it up and do something different. So he comes back to Quincy and uh, doesn't tell him the real reason why that they let him go, obviously. However, there's not many doctor jobs in Quincy at the time, so he has to go and become an EMT for Blessing Hospital instead. He does this, and um, people mention that he's really like, hyper and really has a lot of energy and, and is, is really involved with that stuff. And um, there's some other weird stuff we'll get into uh, in our Patreon episode about that little time period. But his coworkers were immediately disturbed by Swango's enthusiasm when it came to dead bodies. What's the time? frame here uh, we're looking 1984 okay so yeah as i mentioned swango he has this weird obsession with seeing dead bodies and being around them and he acts really weird and, and gets excited and it's very odd for these other workers that are working with him that they had to point that out however on september 14th of 1984 when uh, swango he's you know wants to surprise his his co-workers so he buys them some donuts mm. yay donuts right well, about 30 minutes after they consume the donuts, guess what? Everybody becomes violently ill and has to go wow. to the emergency room. Well, except for Swanga. Well, I guess they just had to walk down the hall. So At first, police believed that the donuts were tampered by a, the donut shop itself. And, and Travis, I was trying to figure this out. Uh, I think I know for sure Krispy Kreme on Broadway was open. I'm not sure if there's any other uh, donut Dixie shops. Cream, Dixie think, Cream, right? I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So Dixie Cream was open. So I'm going to assume that was probably Dixie Cream because that's, man, that was, those right. are some great donuts, by the way. Sure. So they go ahead and have the health department come and inspect the shop. The owner says, we had nothing to do with this. There was no way that we would have tampered with our donuts. You know, why would we do something like that? And the police and the health department believe it, and they don't find any indications of it. So not knowing for sure where this poison came from, they actually thought that the reason all these EMT people got sick was because of some sort of like stomach virus or something like that that mm. caused them to get sick. And maybe it wasn't necessarily because of the donuts. So this was the second time that Swango did what he did, got away with it. Right. At this point in time, you know, you're not getting in trouble for it, so why stop? Yeah. So on several occasions, he decides to uh, add a little something-something to the soft drinks at the uh, break break room at the EMT station. And he also uh, decides, which this one's the real kicker for the Quincy area, is that he decides to uh, add a little something to a pitcher of tea that was in the break room at the EMT station. Hmm. So what happened here was that 
co-workers are always kind of suspicious after all this happening and swango might be doing something but they can't really prove it anyway one day swango he has to leave really quickly because there's a call and he accidentally leaves a duffel bag opened in the break room co-workers look at it find that there's ant poison in his duffel bag hmm with that in mind, they're quickly thinking, okay, what's going on here? And so they decide we need to take a look at the tea pitcher that's in the it's in there. So what they did is they took a sample out of his bag of the ant poison and took a sample of the tea that was on the table or in the refrigerator, I'm not sure which. And they went ahead and they had it sent off because they were kind of curious. They thought they were suspicious that maybe Swango had something to do with all this. Well, the lab determined that the tea contained the ant poison. Oh, wow. Obviously, that ant poison was in Swango's bag. So Swango was quickly arrested on October 26th of 1984. So they do a search of his property, Travis. And this is where it gets uh, crazy. When they get to the apartment, they find multiple canisters of various drugs, as well as other poisonous substances such as ricin, or ricin? I think it's is it ricin or ricin? ricin? I think it's ricin. I think yeah. it's ricin, as well as arsenic in his house. Mm. They also find several handguns, a shotgun, and some weird reading material. And I'm going to read read these off for you real quick here. He had a book that was called The Book of Ceremonial Magic, as well oh. as The Modern Witch's Spellbook. And then finally, he had another book called Necronomicon. Necro- oh, Necronomicon. There you go. Thank you. Yep. Yep. That book was very well worn. And also, they found several pieces of notebook throughout the house that had handwritten spells on them. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Wonder if he was in Gryffindor. Yeah. Who knows? But uh, or maybe a Hufflepuff. C- kind of crazy. Yeah. So obviously, Swango, as we mentioned, got got charged. Uh, he had on April twenty second of nineteen eighty five. He entered a plea of not guilty to Judge Dennis Cashman. On his attorney's advice, Swango chose to waive his right to a jury trial, and which that means then is that the judge gets to determine if he's guilty or, or, or innocent. Uh, during the trial, the main focus for the defense was that Swango's mother lived in Florida at the time, and after a recent visit, Swango brought back some ants to his apartment. And uh, Kevin O'Donnell, who's a local exterminator, investigated the house and did find, in fact, some sort of ants that were a reddish type of ant and was believed that these ants did originate from the Florida area. The defense focused uh, on this case that the fact that Swango had the right to have the ant poison because he was trying to battle these ants in his house. So why, you know, you need ant poison to kill the ants. However, the prosecution rebutted and said that Swango knew what he was doing and purposely brought the ants back to his home as a cover in the event that he was caught. Boy, that's pretty thorough. Yeah. I don't know about that. That's interesting. Why do you go out of your way to make sure you bring home ants from Florida to cover your tracks. Yeah, boy. Well, the judge didn't really believe that either. After one day of deliberating, he came back with a verdict on the first count of aggravated battery. Swango was found not guilty. Okay. However, there were six more counts. Ooh. And on those six remaining counts of aggravated battery, the judge found him guilty on all of them. 
I do want to tell you this quick little side story real quick. He has a girlfriend at this time. Her name's Rita Dumas. We'll talk about her probably more on the Patreon side because there's a lot more going on there, but we will talk about her a little bit more coming up. However, Rita was at the trial. She was sitting behind Swango, and after Swango gets told what his charge, or, you know, that he's been found guilty, she's weeping and crying, and she's upset, and Swango turns around with a styrofoam cup and hands it to Rita. So when you see this happen after what you've just saw, what were your thoughts? You give me a look, Travis. What what's your thoughts when you think of something like that? Don't drink it. <laughs> well, you're right on because that's what the police also believed in the bailiff that was in the courtroom at the time. He runs over to the styrofoam, or runs over to Swango, knocks the styrofoam cup out of his hand. It didn't have liquid in it, however. It just had a note in it. And the, oh. the note said to her, says, I love you, Dumas. Hang in there. That's all it said. But they were worried that, like, you know, he was like, you know, I'm going to jail. Here's your poison. Drink it and die. And that's what they were worried about. <laughs> Boy, yeah. Man. So a little bit of I drama. Everybody's on any any cutlery of any variety is very threatening situation. <laughs> right. Seriously, that's wild. You don't know. So on August 23rd, 1985, Swango was sentenced to a five-year sentence. He only serves two years of this sentence, though, and he's released on August 21st, 1987. Uh, we'll get into this uh, on our Patreon, but it mentioned that Rita had some conspiracy theories as to why he was charged and found guilty on that. We'll talk about that later. Uh, just... A lot of information to go in there that we won't want to get to here. We yeah, get to the sure. meat and potatoes. So obviously, after Swango gets out of prison, he he knows that uh, his time in Quincy is expired. So they decide to move. So him and Rita moved to Virginia. Swango tried to get a new job in the medical field, but the state licensing board rejects his application to renew his medical license. So instead, he becomes a counselor at a career development center. Guess what happens, Travis? Uh, more carrions. <laughs> Pretty much. Co-workers uh, begin becoming ill. Not a whole lot of details beyond that. We just know that there was a lot of illnesses happening in the facility at the time. He also converts a room in the basement to his own personal space. And with all this weirdness going on with the personal space and with people getting sick, the, the center decides to uh, let him go on uh, May of 1989. And it may have been that actually he left on his own, but it sounds like there might have been pressure for him to leave. Following his departure, co-workers alerted authorities of the unexplained illnesses and police investigated his background but couldn't find anything to charge him with. And um, along with all this going on, the local newspaper catches wind of this investigation happening with Swango. So Swango decides that obviously it's going to be easy to backtrack and find out what's going on in his history. So it's time to change his name. So he does a name change and goes from Joseph Michael Swango to David Jackson Adams. So now we move on to nights. There's a lot of information, people. <laughs> I feel like I feel like we need a tally of all the carry-ins. Oh, I know, right? Just man, that's wild. So we moved to 1989. Rita and Swango decide to get married on July 8th, but within a few years, Rita she realizes that she made a horrible mistake, so she divorces him in January of 1991. Uh, Swango finds uh, another job in the meantime, working for a company called At Coal Services. He becomes a lab technician for them. What he does is he, he actually tests the coal that's going to be sent overseas. Uh, at first, ideal worker. The president loved him. I mean, he was a really well-liked employee. But uh, once these divorce procedures started happening, his demeanor really changed. And mm. with that change, all of a sudden, guess what? Coworkers start becoming ill. Wow. All right. 
Oh man! So now we move to nineteen uh, later on in nineteen ninety one. He does uh, decide to apply at the Ohio Valley Medical Center. He decides to lie in his application because obviously with everything going on, it's not going to be easy yeah. to get a job. So he decides to lie in his application and state that uh, he was suspended because of a felony for battery. However, it wasn't because of what he did. It was because he had a quote unquote fist fight at a restaurant. So this hospital goes through all the records and decides, eh, we'll give him a second chance and, and see what happens. However, he wants to make sure that everything is legit and make sure that he gets this past him and make sure that nobody questions what he's doing. So not only does he lie about what he was charged with, but he also decides to make some fake documents to support his case. Uh, these fake documents mm. included a fake prison discharge sheet as well as fake documenting statements. He also had a document to support his claim about the charges of a fistfight. And here's the kicker. He had a letter from the governor of Virginia stating that he, uh, Swango, had his total rights as a citizen restored. Wow. That was kind of like a red flag for this hospital when they said, because that seems very weird that the governor would be like... I can't imagine too many of those letters being written. Exactly. With those in mind, the hospital director decides to reach out to the Quincy PD to find out exactly what was going on and find out the truth. Obviously, they find out about the history, so Swango's application process was immediately suspended, and uh, this prompted Quincy authorities to begin looking into what Swango was doing once again. So they looked into his fraudulent documents, and uh, you know, which is a very serious offense making yeah, documents absolutely. like that. So they were looking into this, and this again is 1991. In that same time, actually early 1992, he begins seeing this young nurse by the name of Kristen Kinney, and uh, we'll talk about her coming up a little bit later. But uh, during this time, also, Swango applies and is hired as a resident of Royal C. Johnson Veterans Memorial Hospital in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. What he did was he did the exact same thing. So he was sending out applications left and right. He did the yeah. exact same thing to this, uh, this Veterans Memorial Hospital in South Dakota, and they you know again like well let's give him a second chance and so they ended up hiring him nobody's getting sick everybody's doing fine for a change so everything's going good swago decides that with everything going well that he's going to go ahead and apply to get his american medical association application put in so he can become part of the ama however he realizes hold on a second if i submit my application to the ama they're going to know what happened and they're going to notify my hospital right away. <laughs> so he's like quickly trying to re- withdraw his application, but it's too late. They've already seen his application. It's already been submitted. And sure enough, the AMA contacts the hospital, tells them about what's going on. And so the hospital's like, we need to do something about this. But Travis, it is, it's like the week before Thanksgiving. And they're like, you know what? We'll deal with it on Monday. Mm. But during the Thanksgiving weekend, the Discovery Channel decides to air a documentary about Michael Swango. What? No. Wow. Okay. Yes. So it's called The Justice Files. And what they do is they reveal that he was uh, convicted of battery along with information about that he's recently supplied false documents to try gaining employment in the medical field. This is happening the weekend that they find out about it. 
So as soon as this thing airs, they immediately call the hospital, say we're shutting him down. He's not allowed on the property. We're not allowing to the pharmacy at all. He doesn't have rights to that. They're terminating his residency. This all happens ironically in just one weekend. What a fortunate or unfortunate series of events for him, depending on how you look at it. That's so crazy. What are the odds? So a few days later, I guess Swango isn't aware that this documentary is happening. Hmm. And so a few days later, the hospital meets with uh, Swango and his girlfriend or fiance at the time, not quite sure, uh, Kristen, and they show him the documentary. And so that happens, which got to be pretty weird. Did he, he didn't bring popcorn, did he? (laughs) <laughs> maybe some tea uh swango was ordered to tender his resignation by december 4th of 1992 so with everything going on and kristen finding out his fiance girlfriend finding out about all this she decides that she's going to move back to virginia she's a nurse by the way as well so she works at the same hospital he does so they she leaves goes back to virginia to her family however after about two months guess who shows up at the door swango and decides that uh, they're back together again after a two-month uh, hiatus apart Nobody oh. understands how they really sep- or you know get decide to get back together or whatever it is, but they end up doing that. And so shortly after Swango, guess what? He starts looking for another job and uh, starts looking for other residency positions. And guess what? He gets a response. <laughs> so a residence a psychiatric position at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. This is in Long Island. Opened up. Okay. He interviewed for the position. He tells them that he's like, "Hey, I don't want to, you know, shock you, but I have been arrested and have been in jail." This time, however, he says that he was in jail because it was for a barroom brawl and not for uh, poisoning his coworkers. So on June 1st of 1993, the hospital says, "Eh, let's employ him. (laughs) So we start the next stage of his uh, working in the hospital and things uh, start getting even more wild. Swango begins his first day, July 1st of 1993. His first patient is a World War II vet by the name of Dominic Buffalino, who was admitted to the hospital with a mild case of lung congestion. Swango met with uh, this World War II vet's wife, and uh, he called himself to the wife, Dr. Kirk Swango. And the reason he called himself that was because he was a huge Star Trek fan, so he wanted to be called, you know, Captain Kirk. Captain Kirk. Kirk. Oh, my. Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, it's just... It's just a mild case of, you know, uh, pneumonia and that he'll be fine. Well, however, the next morning, Swango contacts Dominic's wife and says that he had unfortunately died overnight. Wow. um, Which was kind of a shock. So then we move uh, to July 14th of 1993. According to her neighbors, uh, and this this goes back to Kristen. Kristen is still in Virginia at the time. According to her neighbors, Kristen was having an argument with somebody on the phone that night. Shortly after the disturbance, she calls her mom, and they have a discussion. She can tell that she's upset, but the conversation ends with, No, Mom, I'm fine. I love you. Everything will be fine. A few minutes later, Swango calls her parents to say, Hey, check on Kristen. You know, I think she's having a hard time. You know, check on her. Well, her mom thinks that they had an argument. So she's like, No, I talked to her. She's fine. She's doing better now. And so she leaves it alone. Well, the next evening, about 24 hours later, she receives a phone call from the police department and says, you need to come down to the police station regarding your daughter. So they get down to the police station, come to find out that Kristen apparently took her own life and that uh, she was found uh, slumped dead up against a tree. So they, they, they think that was a suicide? 
They know it was a suicide. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it was, I think if I remember correctly, it was a, a some sort of overdose. And she was, she had a history of doing that before, uh, right after everything happened in uh, South Dakota. Yeah. They found her walking naked down the street one night. Uh, and she was obviously on some sort of drugs at that time as well. Okay. Now, you want to put two and two together saying, well, maybe Swango did it. Well, they weren't together at the time at all. Right, so, right, right. Um, I think, it was the, you know, everybody uh, pretty much assumed, and there's nothing to, to suggest otherwise that Swango had anything, well, not directly to do with it. I mean, indirectly, probably. Sure, so. but not an but, active role. Yeah, I hear Right. You. After Kristen's death, her mother became friends with one of Kristen's former co-workers in South Dakota. Co-worker that's in South Dakota finds out that... Swango's employed at another hospital. Oh boy. Yeah, everything starts falling apart. So the coworker quickly tells the staff in South Dakota that he's got another job. And so they quickly contact that hospital and say, you know, there's a reason why we got rid of this guy. Yeah. And told him the whole story. So the hospital immediately suspends his residency. And in a weird story, and I don't get this of why they would say it, one of the admins in this hospital in, in Long Island says, you're better off just going to another country and practicing medicine in another country. There's opportunities, you know, for doctors without borders, you know, if you want to keep working on the medical stuff, I mean, maybe it's just a, a bad situation that you're in, you know, go, you know, so you go somewhere else. Yeah. He's might, killing people. Luck. I'd say that's pretty rough. Yeah. Go to another country. Following his release, the hospital sent a letter to every medical school in the country, notifying about Swango in his history, not only with the coworkers, but also with, falsifying documents and all this information uh so pretty much it's done strange to me and i don't know the landscape of the medical you know how governing bodies and whatnot but in this up until now really feels like everything is done by state boards and there isn't like an over you know arching regulatory organization from a whole of of a country the united states it's very strange that this information I mean, maybe, of course, this is early, you know, what, mid nine, early 90s. The Internet's mm-hmm. not what it is today. Right. I hope that communication and information is better now because it's eye-opening that, you know, th- th- up until the mid 90s, this guy could just skip the state and set up shop again somewhere else with uh, a good chance of getting away with it for a while. You know, you say that John Wayne Gacy was the same situation. If John Wayne Gacy, if Illinois knew what he did in Iowa yeah he would not have killed all those kids because he would have he would have avoided his probation and been back in prison i mean that's the problem when you go i think it's the same situation when you go over borders that you have that lack of communication like i said hopefully it's better than it yeah, was one, back you one know, can hope i'd love to 25 years ago hear from somebody in the medical you know or industry to say you know how things have hopefully changed for the better so swan goes job hopes in the medical field in the United States have pretty much been completely shut down. So he decides to get a job. This is just amazing. He gets a job in February of 1994 as a position at a wastewater treatment plant in Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah. Kind of scary, right? That's a, that's a big picture of tea. He, that's a big picture of tea. So by this time, though, the FBI is keeping an eye on what he's right. doing. You know, they're freaking out. I mean, he could kill millions of people 
yeah. in, without much, not much work involved. And so the FBI contacts the waste, uh, the water company, the the wastewater treatment plant, and says, you know, this is who you have employed. This is what he's done. So obviously, immediately the the, the wastewater treatment plant lets him go. Right. So now, you know, Swango has no hopes of a job in the United States. And so now it's time to jump ship, if you will, and jump jump the ocean and let's go to Zimbabwe. Okay. So Swango makes the trip in November of 1994. And I'm going to tell you up front, guys, I'm reading this from my outline. There's a lot of names that I'm probably going to butcher <laughs> in this situation because now we're in Zimbabwe, a little bit harder to pronounce, but I'll, right, I'll try the best right. I can. So he begins working at this uh, mission hospital, and I'm not going to pronounce it. I'm thinking it's Nini, but it's spelled M-N-E-N-E. This hospital is in Zimbabwe. The director didn't feel, however, that he was qualified for the position. He needed more training. So what they did was they sent him to another hospital in Bulawayo, which is Zimbabwe's second largest city, as uh, an intern. And he's going to do this for five months. Now, this hospital is a, a major treatment center for AIDS patients in Zimbabwe. So that was kind of what his responsibilities were. Then after those five months, he would come back to the mission that he was originally hired for and work there. Traps, I'm going to tell you this real quick. You know, we're looking at the time frame. you know, this is 1994. Kristen died literally about a year earlier. I didn't think about this when I was writing this outline, but I, since I wrote it, yeah. I kind of pondered this a little bit more. I don't think this guy had anything to lose by this point in time. It sounds like he, yeah, yeah. And you're going to find out why here. I'm going to go through these pretty quick, but I have seven instances that uh, happened, incidences that happened at this hospital. Okay, the first incident was Rhoda Mahama Vana. She died shortly after visit from Swango and came to the hospital only with minor burns and all of a sudden died. Incident two was Kinas Mazizawa. Kinas was sleeping at the hospital when he awoke to see Swango just injecting him with something. The injection immediately paralyzed him. However, doctors were able to keep him alive. And while he was going through all this pain and being paralyzed, he literally says out loud, Dr. Mike gave me an injection. Incident three was Kazuto Suavo. Uh, he was recovering from a leg surgery. Swango arrived in his room when his whole family was in the room with him. So Swango said, can you guys leave? I got to do some work. So the family leaves. However, the family's just outside the door. And all of a sudden they hear Kazao come screaming in agony like something horrible is happening. Wow. A short while later, Swango leaves. And the family comes back in. And this guy says... And this is a quote from him. We won't be going home together because I'm going to die. The doctor has injected me with something, and I think I'm going to die. A few hours later, nurse comes in. The guy was dead. He's on a rampage at this point. There's just, I know. you're right, nothing to lose. And remember, he's only there for five months. Good night. Incident number four is a Philemon Chopoko. Late one night, he was at the hospital. He was sleeping in his room. His wife is in a chair sleeping next to him. Swago comes in the room and begins messing with the IV. The wife wakes up, sees what he's doing, doesn't really think anything of it, falls back asleep. The wife wakes up a little bit later to a nurse who wakes her up and says, uh, did, did anyone tell you your husband died? It's like he wants to get caught at this point. Incident five was Virginia Sabanda. 
She was an expecting mother who would go into labor any day. When Swanga went to visit her, she noticed that he w- or he noticed that she was dilated and she was actually going into labor. A few hours passed uh, during labor. Swango comes in the room, injects some sort of pink substance into Virginia's IV bag. Shortly after, she begins experiencing pain in her abdomen and feels extremely hot. The nurses, however, were able to cool her down and get her calmed back down. And she says that Dr. Mike had injected her with something because she saw him injecting her with the pink stuff. uh, Luckily, though, uh, she survived that. And then uh, two more to tell you about. Again, this is in a five-month stretch. This is uh, from Nurse Edith Naguana. She heard a lot of this gossip about Swango and that, you know, at this point in time, all these things are happening to his patients. But she was always one to defend him and say, you know, he's from the United States. He's doing he's doing something good here. He's helping us out. Guess what? She gets sick. She completely deserts the idea of supporting him when all of a sudden she becomes uh, mysteriously ill and no one can figure out what why she's ill and she ends up dying a few days later. And then finally, in July 20th of 1995, Margaret Zoe came to the mission after a full term miscarriage. The staff worked on her, was able to get her back to normal, get her back to stable condition. She was fine. Then all of a sudden, a few days later, as Dr. Swango was working on her, she died. Hmm. Wow, it's a lot, isn't it? It just, boy, talk about just the the idea of, you know, even what the one nurse that supported him for a while said, here's this selfless doctor from America coming over to help what a weird kind of God complex he probably had to know he had all this this leverage. To attack a supporter. Well, to do it so sloppy. Yeah. I mean, everything he did over there, it was not like it was carefully calculated. It was, oh, the guy was looking the other direction. Boom, let's go for it. He had no he had fear of nothing, it sounds no. like. No. It seemed like he just he just was invincible. Yeah. Wow. Well, we would think that. However, with everything going on, the nurses noticing what's going on, it finally sparked an investigation by the administration at this hospital. Because, you know, we talk about the Virginia Sabana who had the pink substance that was put in her IV when she was uh, giving labor. Also talking about the guy who became paralyzed. You know, all these things were happening under Swango's uh, Swango's um you know, oversight. So the admin collected all these stories and they decided to bring the police in. The police obtained a search warrant for Swango's living quarters in the house. They found a large stockpile of pharmaceuticals, syringes, vials, and other various chemicals. After the search warrants of his house, the hospital administration put him on suspension. Then October 13th of 1995, he was handed a letter announcing his termination from the mission. So with that in mind, he goes back to that first original hospital and he made a friend there and so he talked to the friend said hey you know just they they just they pinned me for this this isn't right i didn't do any of this stuff and so the friend defends him and supports him ends up talking to the administration at the original hospital which this is called the um, pilo or it might be pilo m p i l o hospital the administration knew there were some problems that were happening in the first hospital but they assumed that it was like a personal conflict problem The administration at this new hospital contacted the old hospital and didn't want to give details because it was an active investigation going on. So we couldn't give details of what was going on. Well, if you don't give them details, there's no reason not to hire him. So they hire him. (laughs) Wow. 
And uh, sure enough, within just a few days, uh, a routine hernia treatment patient died unexpectedly. A patient who drank hydrochloric acid in a botched suicide attempt died under weird circumstances. And eventually a reporter from a, a newspaper heard about all this that was going on, then also heard about the investigation going on at the f- old hospital. And so they start digging around. Well, the reporter went to interview this new hospital administrator and ended up revealing all this information about what Swango did at the previous hospital to the administrator. So finally, that was enough for them to be like, nope, nope, we can't have this guy anymore. And so then in mid-March of 1996, Swango was informed that he was no longer needed at that hospital. Real quick here, March 31st, 1996, uh, Swango had a few odds and end jobs in Zimbabwe. Uh, He dated a few different people. There's a whole section on this about a weird situation where he, uh, he lived with some people and he like possibly poisoned some peanut butter and the maids in this house were petrified of him. It's, it's a really weird story. I'm sure we'll dig into it more later, but at this time as well, he was hired for a teaching job at the university teaching hospital in a nearby town. And, um, of course the Zimbabwe officials quickly told that hospital what's going on. And so they fired him immediately. And then after about two months of that, Zimbabwe sent out a a bulletin notifying all the countries in Southwest Africa that Swango was facing charges. So then now none of the hospitals can would would want to hire him. Because so another of what was another going continent on. is now off the table. Yes, another continent. So we hit the final straw, and this comes down to March of 1997. Swango is scheduled to be working at the Royal Hospital, and I think it's Dharan. It's D H A H R A N, and it's located in Saudi Arabia. So now he's trying to move. Saudi Arabia to get employment. Okay. But there's a problem when you go to Saudi Arabia, I'm sure everybody knows this because everybody travels there, is that you have to have a visa from the country that you are an origin of. So your visa has to be a United States visa if you're a United States citizen. He didn't have a United States visa. Hmm. The only way you could get a United States visa was to go to the home country and get one and then go back. Swango, of course, didn't have this and needed to get back to the United States. But he knew that at this point in time, the FBI was investigating him. He knew Zimbabwe was investigating him. And so he had very limited options. And it was very high risk for him to go to the United States to get this visa. He decides, you know, I'm invincible. I'm going to give it a shot. See what happens. Wow. On June 27th of 1997, Swango takes a flight to O'Hare International Airport. The minute he gets off the plane, immigration officials detain him, take his passport, and uh, confiscate that. They put him in custody. He was threatened uh, to be extradited back to Zimbabwe unless he admitted to his forgery charges from back in 1993 for all those falsified documents because he was he left the country because the fbi was on him that was another part of it and so then now he came back and now they're like well you gotta you gotta admit this otherwise we're gonna send you to zimbabwe and it's gonna be a lot worse in zimbabwe than it's gonna be here he goes ahead and says yep i did it he lays it out out on the table ends up that uh, he was charged with defrauding the government in March of 1998. He pled guilty, was sentenced to three and a half years in prison for these forgery charges. And then while Swanga was in prison, the FBI and the different law enforcement agencies, they start really working on trying to 
get him nailed on all these potential murders. Right. They go as far as exhuming bodies, doing uh, doing medical examinations for possible toxins in these bodies. They find toxins in these bodies of these possible patients. So by the time he gets out of jail in three years, actually three and a half years, which was around July of 2000. The three years were for the forgery stuff? Right. Okay. Yeah, for the forgery. They have enough to go ahead and charge him for three counts of murder and several other lesser charges. He was indicted on July 17th of 2000. He pled not guilty at first, but the prosecutors told him that if the court came back with a guilty verdict, that he would almost certainly be facing the death penalty because he was getting charged in New York for the Long Island incidents. Right. And so he would definitely be facing the death penalty. And if he didn't go ahead and plead guilty, then most likely not only that, but then also he would be extradited to Zimbabwe where it would be much worse in Zimbabwe than what was happening. So he goes ahead and thinks about that, goes ahead and decides to plead guilty. And uh, the judge sentenced him to three consecutive life terms at the maximum security prison in Florence, Colorado. And that's where he's at today. And that's the story of Michael Swangen. Wow. I mean, that's, yeah, I had no idea just how deep down the rabbit hole and the whole Zimbabwe connection. That's wild. That's wild. I mean, you can't even, I I didn't even get a chance. I'm hoping I'll do that between now and our Patreon episode to give you an idea of how many murders he potentially has. Yeah, I was going to ask. That's, boy, it, it would be so tough. Even the ones that weren't overly suspicious that he might have had a hand in. You and know, you don't know. These are just a few yeah. of them. I mean, it could be a lot more. I mean, we could pretty much guarantee you that he probably he was convicted of three. Yeah. But, I mean, most likely you add the Zimbabwe stuff in there. He's looking 10 or 15 minimum. And that's just the ones we know about. Yeah, that's in. Boy, that's wild. That's the full story of Michael Swango. It, what happened in Quincy was such a small portion of what he ended up becoming after the fact, but obviously it still had a very potent impact to the Quincy community. I do want to point this out too real quick before we wrap up is that one of the things we're going to do is uh, we're sending a letter to Swango. He is still in Colorado at maximum security prison. We're going to send him a letter and see if he responds. I did read in the book since he's been uh, put in prison in 2000, has not spoke to a single media outlet about this. I know, for example, we talked to Chad a while back, Chad Douglas, that one of his KHQA coworkers tried to interview him and he would have nothing to do with it. So we know for a fact that he's really, really doesn't want to talk about it. We're going to give it a shot. And so if we get, uh, if we, uh, End up hearing back from him. We'll have that for you on a future episode of Wild Quincy. But Travis, give me your thoughts. This is crazy, isn't it? Uh, it really kind of shakes the foundations of of uh, things you take for granted. That you, if you go to a medical facility, the people there are there to help you. If somebody brings something to work as a carry-in, you think it's a nice a nice deed. I mean, I brought donuts in countless times. You know, <laughs> maybe not such good intentions always out there. It it. it uh you get one of these crazies. It almost makes you yeah. wonder if 
don't take candy from strangers is maybe more valuable than what we think. <laughs> you better really know the person that you're eating the yeah. food of. <laughs> Especially when he has a medical know. degree and uh, likes um, likes medicine. So Beware of doctors that cook. Yeah, there we yeah. go. Yeah. yeah. So that is a look <laughs> at the infamous Michael Swango. We'll be back with more here next on Wild Quincy. <laughs> It's March Madness time at the area's leading BF Goodrich tire dealer, Ron's Tire Service. During the month of March, the tire experts at Ron's have a special deal for you. When you buy a set of four new BF Goodrich radial TAs for your car or truck, Ron's Tire Service will give you this handsome TA radial track jacket absolutely free. This offer is good at all Ron's Tire Service locations throughout the tri-state area. Buy these, you'll get this, not this, at all Ron's Tire Service locations throughout the tri-state area. Ron's Tire Service. That's a good throwback ad. And Travis, that voice, that voice used to be a former boss of mine. Is that right? Who would that be? <laughs> that would be Mike Moyers. Oh, right. We just talked about, uh, well, I think we talked about him in the last episode. He was a 99Q employee, then ended up becoming general manager of Star Radio, just recently retired. And uh, Travis, I do want to give a quick throw out real quick. Uh, Mike contacted us after our last episode, and he really enjoyed the episode. But one of the things that he did want to point out was that... Uh, they had to work really hard for that format change, uh, Mike explained, to go to contemporary music and go to that 99Q format. And so uh, we wanted to pass that along that the team worked really hard to make 99Q what it ended up being. So kudos to Mike and those yeah. guys for making that happen. I'm sure that was a crazy, crazy battle to make that make that work. <laughs> I'm sure, especially from the change from one to another. Uh, just, uh, yeah, it's kind of a complete one yeah we appreciate him dropping the line that was great mike thank you very much and and, and we did uh, have a little extra conversation with mike hopefully we'll have him on for a future episode down the road we'd really appreciate that hopefully he won't talk about how bad of a salesperson i was at star radio uh <laughs> there you go <laughs> uh real quick mention ron's tire service uh, ron's unfortunately closed recently but it opened in 1977 at 313 south 9th street in quincy it was uh, moved, to, as we mentioned, to Gardner Denver Expressway or Gardner Expressway. Travis, I did it again. I yeah. always think it's Gardner Denver yeah, Expressway. You do, you do. <laughs> it's just just Gardner Expressway. That's uh, right. So a little quick throwback ad. I believe that was a that was a '90s ad, the TV ad that's uh, for Ron's Tire. I was service. I kept thinking about the Harlem Globetrotters, the music there. I think it was Gus Macker. I think Gus Macker was might have really? been going on. That could be. I think that's why you had that sound. I think I it. saw the Globetrotter Globe. Troppers. Did we see them together? I don't know. I it was uh God, it might have been in the ni- early nineties. I don't know. QHS? I think it was a blue double. It might have been. Stadium. I don't know if we were together, but maybe we both went. No, but I, yeah, I, remember, I remember that feeling like the other team was just at such a horrible disadvantage. And there was a lot of cheating going on, I felt. I don't know. It, I mean, you you can't make three steps and it not be a travel. There's some questionable <laughs> questionable rules. <laughs> questionable rules there. That's all I'm saying. I, well, is it really legal for somebody to sit on the rim and wait for the ball to come? I guess I guess they bend the rules just slightly. 
Just slightly. Oh, we should have a discussion about the Harlem Globetrotters someday. Travis, are you ready for the question of the day? Yeah, my confidence level isn't high, but re re uh, resummarize what I'm pondering here. So the question is this: Which TV station was the first to broadcast in Quincy? Was it KHQA, WGEM, or WTJR? Travis, what is your pick? I really don't have a strong thought on this. I'm gonna go with my gut and say WGEM. All right. Is that your final answer? It is. You are two for two oh, this season. Oh, yeah. like it. Love it. What's more of it? This is kind of a neat little backstory, and I'm sure someday we'll get into it more, but there was a battle between KHQA and WGEM to try being the first on the airwaves. Ironically enough, both of their transmitters came on the same truck and was delivered the same day. Wow. However, WGEM and the engineers and all those guys were a little bit quicker to put it all together because their first broadcast came out on September 4th of 1953, and KHQA was two weeks later, starting on September 23rd. Oh, that must have hurt. That must have hurt. Yeah. And just to throw it out there, WTGR, the Christian station in Quincy, that they were a little bit later on as uh, they began broadcasting January 1st of 1986. There you go. So, Travis, that usually leads into something about what's happening in our next episode. What's happening on the next episode, Chris? We are talking not about local TV stations, but we're talking about TV. And we're going to invite, for the first time ever, our first recurring guest, as Chad Douglas will be once again joining us. Excellent. To talk about Quincy on TV. The rules are simple. We're going to be talking anything Quincy and anything that was on national or network TV. So we'll have our own top five list of each one of those coming your way at the next episode. We want to encourage anybody to drop a line if you want. Wildquincy at gmail.com You can also call in our listener uh, hotline 612-666-9453 That's 612-66-WILD and I'm looking forward to it. Got a Patreon episode coming up next week, and then we're back talking about Quincy on TV. It should be a good time. Travis, before we head out, are we missing anything? I think we covered everything, Chris. All right. Well, for Travis Hoffman, I'm Chris Ketters. You've been listening to Wild Quincy. We'll catch you guys next time. Take care, everybody. Wild Quincy is released every other Tuesday and is produced by Chris Ketters and Travis Hoffman. Sound designed by Downdraft Sound and Editing and music by Travis Hoffman Music. I'm Bo Beecraft, and thanks for listening to Wild Quincy. Wild Quincy.